Namaste and good evening to all of you. In tonight's satsang, I'm going to continue with a few teachings, beautiful teachings taken from the Tibetan yoga, which I had already started in the previous season, but not finished them. We were reading for a few, for a few satsangs of the previous season, teachings from a booklet of the Tibetan yogis, which was called the Yoga of the Disciple, like condensed teachings for the disciples on the path of wisdom, on the path of enlightenment, especially those disciples of the Tibetan spirituality that were practicing yoga as well. Of course, the Tibetan yoga is different in many respects due to the psychological structure of the Tibetans, due to the Buddhist character of their teachings, due to the climate and the geographical area under which it was taught. So Tibetan spirituality in general <coughs> has its specificities. And also, of course, uh, not only that these teachings are specific due to the nature of the Tibetan yoga, but they are very specific due to some character of the Tibetan spirituality itself. As I emphasized in the previous season, and I suppose the recording of that lecture is posted somewhere out there, Tibetan spirituality and Tibetan yoga has the character of being very radical. Scholars today acknowledge that the life expectancy in Tibet before the takeover by the Chinese was of approximately 37 years, one of the lowest in the world. Like we can simply say in Tibet, life was short and hard. And because of this, the Tibetan yoga and the Tibetan spirituality has very often taken some very strong positions, like life is short, the people that were witnessing this were people who were extremely strong, people who were survivors, and because of this, their spirituality was very uncompromising. It is one of the things which uh, enchanted me when I was young and studying yoga, Every time when I was reading the Tibetan teachings, it was like somebody was pouring the water of life in my veins. I felt encouraged. I felt vivified. <coughs> I felt aspiration. I felt the wish of not making any compromise in my spirituality and in my spiritual practice. And I felt these teachings so empowering compared to the wishy-washy, politically correct, uh, compromising, ambiguous ways of the modern world, in which, again, there sometimes seems to exist not a spine, not a strong spine, not a compass, a clear direction to follow into spiritual things. So, this is how I preserved close to my heart this text of 
teachings to the disciples, always verifying in my life that the people who consciously or unconsciously <clears throat> were applying in their lives such teachings were people who were succeeding in spirituality. And the people who were failing into many of their spiritual endeavors were precisely people who could be found in the pages of the Tibetan Yoga of the Disciple. Thus, I started giving inspiration last season from this Yoga of the Disciple of the Tibetans, and we had stopped with a chapter, there are about 28 chapters, 28 little paragraphs with teachings, classified in this Tibetan Chinese style, which is very specific to Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, the Nine Rules for this. What if somebody would discover a tenth one? No, it's like, no, there are nine. The Nine Rules of that. It's coming from a pretty absolutistic position. And the Tibetans were classifying things very much exactly in this style. And there are 28 categories of precepts, and we were past the middle of the text in the 16th category. I did not read all the categories of precepts. If you are curious, this a, a sample of this text, like an edition of this text, is found in the scholarly books of W.Y. Ewan's Vance, an Oxford scholar who was one of the first massive translators of Tibetan spirituality in the first half of the 20th century. And Ewan's Vance translated a book containing several Tibetan teachings, which is called Tibetan Yoga and Secret Doctrines. And one of the chapters in that book is called precisely The Yoga of the Disciple, and it contains the full rendering of these 28 chapters, 28 uh, categories of precepts. So, as I said, I did not go through all of them. Many of them are very philosophical, very metaphysical. And as you will see, I will get into a few of them at some point. But I touched especially those of them which were very pungent. I had an inclination... I had a special attraction towards this intolerant sense of humor of the Tibetans. The Tibetans had a sarcasm uh, due to their powerful Manipura and Ajna. They are always able to cut through the bullshit. They are always able to see through people's hypocrisy. For them, all the spiritual deviations become so transparent because, uh, you know, they have this uncompromising position on some issues. And among those categories of precepts, some of them are more pungent, more funny, more sarcastic than the others. And uh, in this way, they give some very sharp uh, criteria one of the chapters on which I stopped and which I gave as a sample in the very last lecture, in the very last satsang from last season, was, as I said, the chapter number 16, and I quoted only the first of those ten precepts, 
The chapter number 16 is called The Ten Signs of a Superior Man. And of course, woman. It's, as I said, these are not sexist. They refer to the spiritual practitioner, to the human being in general, not only to man. The very title, The Ten Signs of a Superior Man, as you can hear in that lecture, which is again um, uploaded on the net, the very title is a highly politically incorrect title, because of most of the modern civilization refuses to accept that some men and some women are superior, and some men and some women are inferior. That doesn't need that they should be translated in a, at a social level and people that are superior should be given a superior degree of social rights and people that are inferior should be given at um, or a superior level or an inferior lower level of social rights. This is not about social inequity. It is about a perception from the heart chakra. The polarity on the heart chakra, as some of you get to learn <coughs> into the Agama system of teaching, the polarity of the heart chakra is between superior and inferior. The people that have no heart chakra, or better said, by using a more mild language, a less Tibetan language, the people that have blockages on Anahata Chakra, the people that have a low-level Anahata Chakra, they hate always to think in terms of superior or inferior. While the spiritual people that have some arousing of Anahata Chakra, they will always think in terms, in those terms. So I'm not going to insist, I made a explicit commentary on the social and spiritual psychological problems which result from this blindness of the modern man, not in all the countries and in all the cultures, but in most of the dominant ones of today. And I gave as a sample the first indication. The Tibetan gurus thought that they found ten signs which define a superior person, and actually the colophon of this chapter says, these are the ten signs of a superior man, their opposites are the ten signs of an inferior man. Therefore, since spiritual practice, Buddhist or not, is all about accelerating the evolution of a human being, and therefore you'd expect that somebody who did practice successful spirituality for six months, for one year, for six years, for 12 years, is a person that somehow has reached some degree of superiority, of evolution, not arrogant superiority, not infatuation, not hollow pride, um, even a very modest type of superiority, because that in itself is a sign of superiority, to have no pride, to have no arrogance. And thus, 
for the Tibetan yogis to look into the signs of the superior person and the inferior person was like defining directions in evolution. If you go towards this, then you are not going towards superiority. Take a cold shower. Stop. Think twice. If you are becoming like this, then you are becoming the superior human. And therefore, you are showing some evolution. It means your meditation, your spiritual practice is yielding the right results. And if it doesn't, then you should ask yourself very seriously why it doesn't. What's wrong? Were the Tibetans wrong in their teachings? Or do you know something which they didn't know? Or what is the secret of this inconcordance? The first sign, which I had already copied, and I'm just going to mention, I'm not going to stop with it. The so first so-called sign is the following. To have but little pride and no envy is the sign of a superior man. Are you an envious person? How often in the last seven days did you envy somebody for something which they had? Material, spiritual, social, human, sexual, whichever way. Are you finding yourself often envying? Envying that some people are rich? Envying that some people are taller than you? Envying that some people have more sex than you do or something? Tibetan yoga says to have no envy is the sign of a superior man. That's where it goes. And to have but little pride. It doesn't say zero pride because that's very hard. And I described in that discourse which is recorded the different aspects of pride and different shortcomings of pride. So let's not be utopic and go into absolute. Those that have no pride. There may be some people who are having a non-egocentric pride. Like, I am proud that I have got to hear the teachings of Abhinava Gupta and Kashmiri Shaivism in this lifetime, in this body. Because not many people in their lifetimes, not many people while they are in a human body, they got to hear Kashmiri Shaivism and Abhinava Gupta's teaching. I am proud that I have reached to that level. It doesn't mean that I am arrogant or I am a jerk. I am simply proud and at the same time grateful that I have been given such a great honor. But it would be not to acknowledge that that thing is great and valorous that I would say, well, I am indeed very grateful that I have received such teachings. So, to have but little pride and no envy is the sign of a superior man. Let us now move to the second which opens our presentation of tonight. To have but few desires and satisfaction with simple things is the sign of a superior man. How many desires do you have? Constantly, constantly hankering for more. Constantly, constantly desiring for something else. 
to have but few desires and satisfaction with simple things. Look at your lives. Are you satisfied with simple things? I know people who definitely are not satisfied with simple things. They need, they are very high maintenance in many, many, many ways. If their habitation is not like this and like that, if their transportation is not like this or like that, if their clothes are not like this or like that, if their financial situation is not like this or like that, and a million other ifs, then they are not happy, then they are not satisfied. They are very difficult to please. Always, always the stake of their expectations being very, very high. And there are some people, wherever you put them, they are satisfied. There is a beautiful story in the Fathers of the Desert in which an old man, an elder, therefore a confessor, one of the guides, is living together with an apprentice. That was one of the things that an apprentice was usually sitting by an elder to learn the prayer and all the spiritual life. And one of the rules of the youngsters was obedience, like you had to cultivate humility to trample on the ego, to make sure that if you live for 12 years with a spiritual teacher, in those 12 years, first and foremost, you're going to crush your ego. You are going to get out of there with no arrogance, with no pride, not being puffed up, but on the contrary, being toned down in your selfishness. And at some point, this young man, he is cutting some food, some vegetables. He is doing the chores, like he is the slave, right? He is the junior in there, and he is doing lots of the chores. And as he is doing some work in the kitchen, the old man calls from the house, and he says, brother, brother, and this guy hops like electrified and drops even the knife right there in the middle of cutting. He was cutting something and he drops it. He doesn't even finish to cut that vegetable or whatever it was. He just stops in the middle and he says, yes, father, what? And there was a visitor watching the scene. And the visitor, when the scene is over and the man comes back to his kitchen work, the visitor says, my goodness, how obedient you are. How, uh, you know, how humble you are. What a sort of obedience and love you have. Like you didn't even finish cutting that vegetable. Like you stopped in that fraction of a second and you said yes. And remember, those people were living together for years. Like it's not easy to preserve that kind of attitude for years when you see the other person weak, sick, in all sorts of other private situations, and yet to preserve that snappy spirit, at which the young man says, you are praising me, but it's not true. He says, this obedience, this spirit of obedience, 
is coming from the old man, is not coming from me. I may seem obedient, but it's because this man is hundred times more obedient than me. Not necessarily to me, because now we play the role that he's my teacher and I'm the pupil. But he in his turn to the world and to his teacher, he probably was hundred times better than I am. And I am humbled by him, and therefore that's why I seem to you obedient. And he says, do you want me to show to you, to demonstrate to you, so that you can get something from visiting us? Do you want me to show to you that it is true? And when this guy said yes, then the disciple simply messed up the food. He burned the food. He on purpose created a fiasco in the... Of, of course their food was anyway very simple and very primitive, living in the desert and so on. But he on purpose completely ruined it. And he served this burned stuff, unedible, like something which is really... He served it to the old man, like that's the meal of the day. And the old man put his head down and he started eating dutifully, like, like, you know, like he was a prisoner in a prison and they told him, eat. And he started humbly eating. And the young man pushed the envelope, just to, not because he was cheeky, but he wanted to show this, this man how far it went. He said, uh, is the food good, father? And the old man with his head down and humble said, yes, my son, it's very good. Thank you, thank you for the food which you have made. So when they went back to the kitchen, the young man told to the visitor, you see, the obedience is not mine. It's from him that this is coming. This is where the spirit is. That is why to be satisfied with simple things, not to constantly try to think that the humanity is scourging the planet. We want more and more and more and more Try to think your ancestors 200 years ago. What did they have from what you have today and you consider vital, indispensable? There were no chemicals. Everything, you know, like we tried to put some yoga mats in the hall and then they discovered that the yoga mats were sticking to the floor. And then we had to find some other yoga mats. Which This means some chemicals, some further industry which created more advanced materials because the normal material would stick to the cement floor and would peel off. Even if you don't realize life is easy for us because we are using around 80,000 chemical substances in our daily life, such as the lacquer on this wooden platform and the 100,000, the thing which make possible my cotton clothes to be shining orange. The Babas from India, they didn't have shining orange clothes. They were having white linen cloth, which they were rubbing with bricks, with bricks, the bricks, which using the broken bricks and powder, that orange powder from the bricks. It was used to color the clothes. They were not looking very shining orange or anything. It was like a simple life with simple solutions and simple needs. And that is why when you look, you see that people want this, and they want this, and they want that, but then the consumption of energy, 
the consumption of materials, the consumption of things, they are a scourge for the planet. More and more people want to eat meat, because if you don't eat meat, you don't have a good diet. But because of the meat industry in Brazil, they have cut more than one-third of the rainforest. When they cut the rainforest, what do you think that they do in the space which is free? They graze cattle. That's what they do. And that is why it is like if you don't get pleased with little and you want more, 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 who suffers? The whole humanity, the whole planet, the resources are limited. And some people want more, more, more. Whenever you buy yourself a better car or a better airplane or a better computer, realize that that technology is paid by somebody, somewhere, somehow. I don't want to ruin in your minds the idea of progress, but progress is made sometimes very unecologically and unwisely, and it is at the cost of the planet, it is at the cost of everyone else. I, there was a French tantric teacher in the 1950s or 60s who showed in one of his works how the stock exchange already in the 60s gave simply signs of ruining the planet, ruining everything. Therefore, what I'm saying here is there is a deep, deep, it's not only about you, that if you are a person with many desires and who is very sophisticated and difficult to please, that you are far from the wisdom. But there are consequences, there are karmic consequences which are spreading to the planet, which are spreading to everyone else. It has been demonstrated that every human being today I don't know, in, in an hour or something, is breathing at least one atom, which once upon a time was in the body of Alexander the Great. Either in the brain or in the anus, that doesn't matter where that atom was. <clears throat> but today, <coughs> every human being on this earth, irrespective of the continent, will be breathing together with the air, in I don't know how many minutes, at least one atom which once belonged to the body of Alexander the Great or of others like them. Which means we are part of a system. The earth is not as big as we wished it would be. It's a closed system and we are all sharing the same system. And that is why <coughs> many of these things have global global consequences. Remember that if you have many desires and if you are not satisfied with simple things, not only that you are far from the truth, but you are creating negative karma and you are creating suffering, you are creating darkness. The people with endless desires are the ones that have destroyed the face of this earth the endless desires of people. That's why it would be indeed not only wise, but even ecological, that people make a smaller footprint on the face of the earth 
and they control the overpopulation, and they control many, many other factors. The third of the signs which Tibetan gurus saw as characteristic says, to be lacking in hypocrisy and deceit is the sign of a superior man. I don't know how other people are, but one, one of the things which pushes my buttons most in spirituality is hypocrisy. Like, I can accept that people have weaknesses. I can accept that people are not intelligent or are physically having some handicaps or that they are coming with some traumas from childhood. I can accept a lot of things because I myself am not a perfect person and I am measuring with the same measure. But I don't understand for the life of me, why people need to be hypocrite when they, especially when they deal with spirituality? Why should the spiritual person who is about to forfeit their life in the quest of a Don Quixote-like ideal, somebody who launches themselves on an idealistic quest, why should such a person be deceitful and full of hypocrisy. I am seeing it all the time, all the time, especially in this Kali Yuga, especially in the spirituality in the last 50 years, hypocrisy has become a landmark. Hypocrisy, not, I mean, the fact that they practice hypocrisy in politics or in the financial world or in other and other, it's fine. If, if I would be a Christian fundamentalist, I would say those people belong to the devil anyway. So you expect to see there all the devilish vices, all the devilish defects of the human being. But in spirituality, in the spiritual quest, unfortunately, be aware of this. It is very, very often manifesting and it is one of the things which falsifies the entire spiritual life. It falsifies the entire spiritual life for the human being, for they themselves. I remember I was, when I was living in Romania, I was watching people that were Christian Orthodox, part of the Christian Orthodox, the Eastern branch of Christianity, which is the dominant religion in that country. And in the Eastern Orthodox religion, if you are a practicing Christian, there are not really many things that the priests are asking from you as spiritual guides. They are asking you, of course, that you should live according to the Ten Commandments, thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal, and all that, which are essentially even what the communist government or any government asks from any citizen, they are normal tenets of morality and of social life anyways. And on top of that, people were asked few spiritual practices. And one of the spiritual things which still survived in the Orthodox Church and did not survive so much, for example, in the Catholic Church, is the Lent. 
there are two periods over the year where people are supposed to go vegan. You're not supposed to eat animal products, animal proteins during those two periods. Those two periods are of 40 days each, 40 days before Christmas and 40 days before Easter, like a sort of a spiritualization. If you don't eat animal products, then somehow your aura, your body gets lighter. It, it is less animal. You are feeding less the animal part of you and somehow the angelic part of you is highlighted by a sort of compensation. It's not really difficult, you would say. I've seen so much hypocrisy about this simple thing. So I see people going and saying, uh, this Christmas I will not hold the land. And I will say, why? Because I'm sick. And I say, how do you go with that? Oh, they said, I went to the priest and told him that I'm sick. And the priest clapped me on the shoulder and he said, sure, sure. If you are sick, no, no, don't force yourself. I told them, for God's sake, but actually a vegan diet would heal you because your disease is because you are eating pork three times per day. It's actually it's salvation. You don't need to not do the fast because you are sick. You need to do double the fast precisely because you are sick. So what sort of excuse is this? I'm not going in the Lent because I'm sick. But the Lent has the power to heal you. Hypocrisy. Like people would always say, I got a medical, uh, I'm exempt due to some medical thing. This, this kind of thing is applied a lot. And again, realize in the spiritual life, this is falsifying. The people who thought, I am a great Christian, but actually I'm secretly greedy for pork, and I found an excuse that I'm sick. Oh, look, I have a very big rash on the skin here. So can I please not be vegan during this Lent? And the priest, who is another hypocrite, claps you on the shoulder because you scratch his back and he scratches yours. And he says, sure, sure. You know, It's like we are all colleagues in the same big lie. We are all colleagues in the same hypocrisy. I hate to do spiritual efforts. I hate to tame my desire for pork. And I myself am excused by someone else. <clears throat> and we are just basically all of us hypocrites who are excusing each other. Therefore, pay attention to this. It is happening a lot in the spiritual life that some people are just practicing hypocrisy and deceit. And it is very, very sad. It is difficult to practice deceit in the normal world, and yet they do. Recent scandal shows that they discovered that the Chinese are producing rice made of plastic. And that is after two previous scandals in which the Chinese food industry was exposed for producing eggs 
which were not eggs, they were made of some chemicals, and milk, which was not milk, it was made from five chemicals, out of which one was urea, the main component in urine, mixed up with four other substances, gives rise to a white liquid, which looks and smells like milk, it has nothing in common with milk, though. No? Like, okay, it's, it's possible to practice deceit and hypocrisy even, even right under your nose. Like, I give you milk and eggs and rice, and they are all of them plastic and chemicals. How much more easy is it to practice hypocrisy in spirituality, which is so immaterial? Somebody tells you something and they are selling castles into thin air. They are selling phantasmagoria. That the spiritual world is so disturbed today because of these incredible levels of hypocrisy and deceit. There are people who, there are people who sold, for God's sake, there is a fellow who twice sold the Eiffel Tower in Paris. To some, to some imbecile tourist who had lots of money. And imagine people bought the Eiffel Tower. Or they thought that they bought the Eiffel Tower. If you can sell the Eiffel Tower, can you imagine what, if some people have the cheek, what can they sell? We had in the school a dude who claimed that he came from Shambhala and that he was a secret Swami from Rishikesh. And the, the future demonstrated that he was schizophrenic and he ended by assassinating a woman back to his country in India. In the evening and in the days when he announced that he was coming from Shambhala and, and he came to correct me because I had a skewed view about some things which he didn't quite like, I have never seen so many people to the satsang as in the evening when that guy came in that school year, everybody was completely fascinated to come and see the important man from Shambhala who was a schizophrenic. Like, people, people are dying for some of these. It's so easy to sell hypocrisy and deceit in spirituality and mind you that you yourselves don't slide into that direction. I knew many people who, when they were young, they were pure. I have had one of my spiritual teachers, when he was young, he was of such a purity that he forbade to some of his pupils to become bee producers, because by being a bee producer, you have to associate with the fairies, with the spirits of the bees, and then it becomes a sort of a witchcraft, it becomes a sort of a shamanism, and you have to stay pure not to go in contact with lower spirits and so on. So puritanic this man was. And 20 years later, he gave some bullshit advice to somebody who was going to tell, take them, it's like spiritual advice, being a great teacher. And then one of his pupils, a good friend of mine, came and showed him and said, look, you've said something wrong because you've been misinformed. The situation is like this and like that. You know what his answer was? He said, what will the other people say now if I take my word back on that 
and say I was wrong. That's the bullshit. A man who was careful about not even interacting telepathically with the spirits of the bee houses, of the beehives, now he cared about what will the other people say just because he gave an uninformed advice. Hypocrisy, deceit, and it grows on people. It grows on some people that you wouldn't believe it would grow on. And thus we move to the fourth of the signs. To regulate one's conduct in accordance with the law of cause and effect, or karma, to the law of karma, as carefully as one guards the pupils of one's eyes, is the sign of a superior man. A superior spiritual practitioner does not make compromises on karma. People are ready to make compromises on it. I have been, I have met with many Christian, anti-Christian contenders, people, anarchic young people who are completely anti-church and anti-Christianity. And I'm not saying that that institution doesn't have major problems, but one should not throw the baby together with the water from the bathtub <clears throat> because still Christianity preserves at least some of the teachings of Jesus and Jesus is not just anyone. There is something very important there. And uh, those people were saying, oh, uh, the church manipulates with all this, with the celibacy of the monks and, uh, um, you know, there is no heaven, there is no hell. Even Jesus is probably just a myth and did not exist. There is no God and so on. In a similar way, I had the surprise to meet with people that were calling themselves spiritual. People who had changed their name given by their mother and father to a spiritual name. People who were selling workshops online. People that were considering themselves spiritual teachers and possessors of secret lore. And then when we got to the point where I invoked the law of karma, because I simply was like the devil's advocate, I simply brought up some issues to see what would they would say about it, then this person tells me, oh, I think that the law of karma was invented by the priests to just make people behave. I'm, the, the answer was much longer and much more intelligently and metaphysically colorful, but the idea was this person couldn't even, and they were spiritual in the, at the teacher level, they didn't even believe in karma. They believed that karma is a lie invented by Buddha to manipulate him in the 21st century. That's why you can see that this is important. It's also a shortcoming, like the Tibetans have seen so right, there is so much human experience condensed in these lines. The Tibetans in their hundreds and perhaps also with the previous experience in India, they had seen so many people going so wrong in their spiritual life 
that this is invaluable condensed experience to regulate one's conduct, one's behavior, one's life in accordance with the law of karma. Like if I am going to do this, it is going to produce this and that karma. And there is no way around that. Am I ready to take that? And not only to regulate it, the behavior, as carefully as one guards the pupils of one's eyes. You can't imagine something more sensitive than the eyeball and the pupils. You know, like you, you are guarding your own eyesight. It's one of the most vulnerable and precious things. And like you have to be so careful about it. And that's exactly what the Tibetans say. A superior man, a superior woman is thinking twice and ten times about the karmic implications of what they do. And to become reckless and indifferent, saying, oh, karma doesn't have effects on me, or karma <clears throat> is just a bullshit idea invented by the Buddhist priests or some other ex pathetic excuse like that, is considered by the Tibetans to be just a sign of animality, a sign of subhumanity, a sign of inferiority. It's like not seeing the light. It's like not having clarity in your spirit if you don't see that the law of karma has to be taken carefully into account. So much commentary could be done here. I don't want to make a long commentary on each and every one of them because so many countless examples could be given to, to take carefully the law of karma into account. It does not mean that you have to maybe sometimes not apply something more drastic, like even the Tibetan civilization. In some situation it was drastic. All these tulku little kids, these little five-year-old kids with shaved heads, which look so sweet in robes in monasteries, they were receiving and still are sometimes physical discipline, which means when they did not meditate, they got beaten up, they got punished bodily, and there was a lot of bodily, corporeal punishment and still exists. I know many Farangs who went to learn Shaolin martial arts. No, because it's fashionable and now it's open and you can take an airplane ticket and go there. And when they went there, they ran away from their squealing because they've seen a lot of the kids that learn Shaolin and they get beaten up every day. That's how you learn Shaolin. Not by politically correct Western pampering methods. This is the Chinese traditional system, and if you don't like it, pack and go. From 800 years, children were educated the hard way so that they should become hardened practitioners. I'm sure some smart psychologist of today would say that was wrong. We should have used encouragements and affirmations and bring forth the inner child. And guess what? The Shaolin monks thinks that that is bullshit. And therefore, they practice another educational method, which is going against all the soft core 
modern politically correct methodologies. And only time will tell if they were right or not. But basically what I'm saying is, in a Buddhist environment like the Shaolin monastery, they administer physical punishment. What about the karma? They thought about it. And they think that the gain which results is bigger than the actual physical punishment. Therefore, it doesn't mean that you cannot do some things which would be tough. But it means that you always have to have a record, a very clear record, like not to act unconsciously. It was Osho Rajneesh in one of his discourses who said, Exactly as if you claim that if you, you didn't know the law, it doesn't exempt you from going to prison, you can never bring the legal excuse, I was unaware of the law. It's your problem. You had to be aware. It's your responsibility as a citizen to be aware what the law is. That excuse cannot be taken into account. So Osho said exactly like that, the fact that some people don't understand or know the karmic and spiritual circumstances of some of their actions, it doesn't actually exempt you from the punishment. On the contrary, brought Rajneesh Osho the argument. He said, if you touch a red hot or a very hot plate of metal, there is a big difference between if you touch it consciously or unaware. Because if you know that it's a red-hot plate of metal, you're going to touch it briefly and not get burned very badly. But if you are completely unaware and prop your hand on it, and then one second later you discover it was red-hot, then you get burned really badly. So actually the people who go like a cow in a pharmacy like an elephant in a glass house and break everything around them not realizing because they are just dull oxen. <clears throat> this does not exempt anybody <coughs> from the consequences. And usually the things which you do out of ignorance, they have consequences more bitter than when you do something wrong, but at least you do it consciously knowing that you are doing something wrong, and at least you take maximum precautions to diminish the fallout as much as possible. That is why you have to interpret this, <clears throat> not in a Svadhisthanistic, childish way, because the Tibetans were not Svadhisthanistic and childish. In the Tibetan culture, there are many harsh things which were happening, but still, the idea is you have to conduct your life carefully considering the law of action and reaction, the law of cause and effect, or the law of karma. The number five principle or sign to be faithful to one's engagements and obligations is the sign of a superior man. It's as simple as that. The superior man slash woman, they know 
what their determination is. They know what their vows are. They are people who take a vow of obedience and then they go disobedient. They are people who take a vow of poverty and then they find themselves living in luxury. There are people who take a vow of chastity and then they found themselves, they find themselves living in fornication. There are people who take all sorts of obligations and all sorts of engagements and then they are not there. They are not present. Apply this with the yoga practice. There are people who come to yoga and when they are in the beginning and enthusiastic, wow, they are going to practice and they are going to reach nirvana and they are going to do this. Three years later, you find them doing a hundred other things but not pursuing their spiritual practice. This means that in the beginning, that awakening was forgotten. Either it was as vadistanistic, superficial enthusiasm, which was not authentic, or somehow the level of their consciousness got blurred along the way, and they forgot, they forgot that moment of clarity where they saw some things, and then they decided, this is how I want to live my life. I met people who in a moment of clarity, they could feel the pain of the animals on this world, and they decided to go vegetarian, and then the same people 25 years later, they quit vegetarianism. How comes, where is that moment of lucidity? Where is that moment of clarity? To be faithful to one's engagements and obligations is the sign of a superior man. The inferior person constantly discards obligations and engagements. Eh, after all, I'm not obliged to do this or that. You see that in relationships. We are in a tantric school and a part of the people in this school are working hard on the side of developing spiritual relationships. What spiritual relationship is there when there is no engagement and obligation? When there is no commitment to what you do, like pursue, pursue the goal as far as it is humanly possible. Thus, this is something which applies to so many things in spirituality and therefore it is very important to think you know, which are my engagements, which are my previous engagements, commitments, obligations, how can I stand faithful to those? The sixth sign, which according to the Tibetan yogis and lamas characterizes a spiritual, a superior man, to be able to keep alive friendships while one at the same time regards all beings with impartiality is the sign of a superior man. That's a paradox, because somebody who is spiritual is supposed to be unbiased. Love thine enemies. Love everyone 
like yourself, then how are you going to have a friendship or a love relationship when everybody is pretty much the same for you? Your friend is there with you and your friend is dilly-dallying. Your friend is not really having any serious... You are like your friend is okay, health-wise, psychologically. Your friend is in one of the good periods of their life, even if he's a spiritual, he or she is a spiritual practitioner. <coughs> your friend is there, and your friend is fine. And your friend is just having a little bit of a wish of dilly-dallying, of chit-chatting, of, you know, just fooling around, just wasting some time and so on. Then another person comes into the equation who is not your friend. That person is in a much more desperate situation. There is a health emergency. There is a psychological emergency. There is some deep suffering. And you are not with your friend. Let's put it in the sexual tantric way. You are with your sexual partner watching a movie on video. And there comes an emergency. And your friend or your sexual partner, your lover, is getting offended because you interrupt your date to go and help some third person who is not so important. No, like, shouldn't I be given priority? Shouldn't we have some quality time here? And you interrupt our quality time just to go and do that? How can a person maintain love? How can a person maintain friendship when a person is equally open to all, like Jesus, like Milarepa, even Albert Einstein, rising with his consciousness at the level of Vishuddha Chakra, perhaps Ajna Chakra, sometimes he is giving a scientific advice to his disciples, because like big scientists, in those days, we're still having sort of disciples. And he, he, the teaching of Albert Einstein is very unusual. He, he said to the would-be scientists, don't get married so that you won't belong to, the, to a woman, but to the whole world. Because the question is, when you have an idea, how can you go to the laboratory for three days and ignore your lover, your best friend? How then can you still have a friendship? This is brought forth here by the Tibetans. To be able to keep alive friendships while one at the same time regards all beings with impartiality is the sign of a superior man. Like even in the life of Jesus, where they ask him, who is going to be the first? And he said, the first is going to be the last, and the last is going to be the first. And you are not here to be the first or the last, you know, because those Manipuristic Jewish people who are his disciples, they are immediately going into hierarchies, into primacy. <clears throat> who is going to be the greatest of us? And although Jesus clearly says, you are all one and the same, don't try to make the differences, 
at least two or three times in the Gospel of John, John is called the disciple that Jesus loved. Like what, didn't he love the others? Of course he loved everybody. And yet there is a clear, there are clear references in the Bible and in the Christian theology that Jesus was particularly soft on John. John was having a special loving relationship with Jesus. And when Jesus announced, one of you is going to betray me, John put his head on his chest and he said, Master, my heart is sickened. You know, it's like, am I going to, like, I'm going to die. You know, am I going to love you, to, to betray you? Like, there was a special relationship between John and Jesus. Although the leader of the disciples was named Peter, and Jesus told to them clearly, nobody is above anybody in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of heaven, there is that nobody stands above anyone. So this being said, it is a beautiful thought here. Very often the Tibetan world of monks was a very masculine world, and friendship, they, they seldom would speak about sexual or loving relationships, but they would speak about friendships. How can you be friend with somebody for a lifetime when at the same time you are equal to all? Then why does the friend consider himself or herself a friend? Because apparent or at a certain level, you are not giving anything extra. On the contrary, I can tell from the experience of my life that sometimes when you are in spirituality, you are friends, and when you are in the position where I stand, your friends and the people that come near to you are more often sacrificed than the other people because you know that they are devoted to you and you know that you can rely on them and that's why sometimes when there is an emergency, I'm not calling any one of you at three o'clock in the night time and I'm saying I have a problem. But if I would have it, I would call Muktananda because I know I can rely on him at three o'clock in the night. So he gets more annoyance. Maybe he doesn't feel it as annoyance, but he would get more nuisance from me because of being close than actually somebody who is not close. So how do you manage to keep a friendship when actually you don't give anything extra or special and yet there is that special something there. That's like a miracle and that's why the Tibetans have said this is a sign of superiority. <clears throat> Number seven, to look with pity and without anger upon those who live in evil is the sign of a superior man. So much for all the firebrand preachers and for all the spouting so-called prophets who go demonizing people <coughs> and threatening them with hell and putting people down and being so aggressive and discriminating. That the same thing exists formulated, in other words, in the Christian mysticism, where it says, do not hate the sinner. 
you may hate the sin, the sin being a principle, being you can hate the sin because you will not produce any negative karma by hating the sin. But if you hate the sinner, then you can harm the sinner. And you should not hate the sinner. You should hate the sin. Love the sinner. Because the sinner is a victim, is a person that is demonized, a person that is blinded by desires, a person that is possessed by something inferior. To look with pity and without anger upon those who live in evil is the sign of a superior man. You see that in the lives of Buddha and Milarepa. You see that in the life of Rumi. You see that, of course, in the exemplary life of Jesus. You see that in the lives of so many saints and mystics that they would be confronted often with people for whom at least they subjectively thought that those people live into evil. And yet, to look upon them with pity, not with anger, because those are immortal souls. One day, those people who now live in evil, they are going to be enlightened as much as Buddha. One day, every soul, every spirit will reach to nirvana. And therefore, there's no need to be angry. There's only need to have pity because the immortal soul, the immortal Buddha nature is kept into a condition of ignorance, into a condition of pain. The people that live in evil are preparing for themselves hell because they are accumulating negative karma. Buddha himself says, and Jesus has a similar expression, where he says, Woe is not to those that suffer. Woe is to those that make the evil, that produce the suffering. Because the one that suffers pays some negative karma, and in the end of the day, the one that in the morning suffered, in the evening is lighter karmically. But the real woe is the one who produces suffering, because in the end of the day, that one will have negative karma additionally into his or her account. And meanwhile, <coughs> whatever satisfaction they may have derived from that act, it has gone. My first spiritual teacher was quoting one of the Greek philosophers. I forgot who, but I remembered his expression, his saying, for my life. Because he said, if you do, if you do evil with pleasure, the pleasure that you experience will be over and the evil will still be there in its consequences. While if you are making good with pain, the pain will pass away, and the good that you did will last. Therefore, it is the same thing here. To be able to see the human being as an immortal soul, as a brother or sister of evolution, 
<coughs> exactly as some people are more handicapped physically, exactly as some people are more handicapped financially, socially, and in a hundred other ways, remember that the people that live in something which you could call evil are actually unfortunate souls. They are unhappy souls. It is exactly like a wounded animal that bites you and tries to strike and it is more dangerous hundred times when it is wounded than when it is okay. Exactly in the same way there are many men and women who are dark and evil just because they suffer. Some of them even physically. I have seen when I was learning chiropractic from a great chiropractor who was a great spiritual teacher as well, this chiropractor often said about some people, this person is behaving in very wicked ways simply because they have chronic pain in their bones. Just their bone system is chronically painful for years, and then when you are tormented by pain for years and years, it's very difficult to be a nice person. It's very easy to become grumpy, and from grumpy to become sick, and from that to become wicked and evil. Even physical pain turns the character of people, and therefore one has to look with pity and without anger. Try to realize the demons can be fearful, frightening, and despicable creatures. But never forget that the demons live in hell. That's where they come from, and that's where they return. They are like prisoners in an ugly prison. To live in hell is one of the most unfortunate existential conditions, according to the Tibetan teachings of afterlife and spirituality. Therefore, sometimes you can think that a demon is a terribly wicked creature that takes advantage of you. Always realize that that demon dwells in some very terrible regions. It's a slum dweller in the invisible world, and it's not a happy life. To be a demon can seem like there's a manipuristic edge to it, but the existential condition is unhappy. I have known many people who had a demonic temperament, strong manipura, very sarcastic, very cynical, strong people with very blocked anahata chakra and so on, and those people were the first that they were unhappy. Some of them became pupils of yoga, and they came to me and they said, Swami, I'm 45 years, I'm 50 years of age, and I discover that I'm more and more unhappy. Manipuristic people, super intelligent, involved into computers, flying millions of miles every month or year, people having condos at the same time in three major cities of the world, people that were kicking ass and they were really smart and strong, they came and confessed, I am very demanding with myself, I'm very perfectionistic, I blame myself a lot, 
and because of it there is something which is like eating me from inside, I am mean, I am mean to myself. There is a part of me which tortures myself. What to do? And I told them, until you don't open your heart chakra, this will not be solved. There comes a moment where the heart chakra needs to be open because it's the air element and the air element is one of the four basic elements. You cannot live with three elements out of four. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Therefore, you need the heart chakra has an equal right with your Manipura and Zvadistana and Muladhara to exist in the economy of your system. That is why sometimes you see people of great strength and which are inclined towards something evil, they are not happy. There is no happiness in their soul. That's why great mystics, they had pity. There were many kings and emperors that challenged mystics. Some poor Jewish prophets who were dressed in rags and living in the desert. Some Indian babas who were half naked and were living in the forest. And they answered back with full courage to that king or emperor telling him, you may seem now that you have this power, but your soul is a mess. And therefore, so you are not living into happiness. You are just pretending because of your worldly power to be, to yap at everybody and at me and so on. But, if, but I can look directly in your soul and I see that there is no happiness in your soul. That is why look with pity not with anger. It's true. Sometimes people living in the evil, they can be very disturbing and they can hurt you and harm you. And then anger seems to be a natural response. Ultimately, when you meditate, you'll discover that more pity and compassion are the appropriate reaction. Because people like Francis of Assisi they have been persecuted constantly and eventually they reached bliss and other powerful people, they went into inner pain, into darkness, because ultimately the soul is the core of our being. If you keep your soul unhappy, nothing works. And the people who live in evil, they cannot have a happy soul. It's simply not possible by matter of principle. Number eight is one of the really beautiful ones. I often experienced the opposite of it and I often felt the need to call the attention of people upon it. Number eight says to allow unto others victory taking onto oneself defeat is the sign of a superior man. I have very often, even in yoga, known many men and many women who were incapable of losing elegantly. People who at the time when they were about to lose, and to lose could mean anything. Like you come to the yoga class 
and we, we are late five times out of eight, and in the end the registration office tells you, you cannot go further, you did not fulfill the quota. And then the person feels it like a loss. To lose means a hundred things. To lose money. To lose... You have a date with somebody in a tantric school. You have a date. And then the date gets suddenly cancelled because the other person cannot. Or a hundred other such things. People... Some people who are completely average, in the moment when the bone was taken from under their nose, they became like rabid dogs. They became incredibly bad. As long as nothing was taken, nothing was given, those people were playing <coughs> the pretense of a civilized person. Boy! But in the moment when they had to lose something, when they had to take some defeat, gosh, then it became a totally different story. Then all holes are barred. You know, it's like all the masks <coughs> suddenly fell off. There exists a proverb, a similar proverb in England, which says the character of a person is best known in adversity, not in favorable conditions. In favorable conditions, everybody is cool. Everybody is sweet. But when adversity comes, <clears throat> when people have to fight for some food, when people can't get something, then suddenly things become way way worse. This, the Tibetans have said, the spiritual person has a psychology in which they can stand back. They can simply say, okay, you know, we're not going to fight right now about this, are we? You take it. It's yours. Like we are going to the French bakery and we are two trying to buy the last loaf of bread. The spiritual person would stand back and will say, it's yours. I will eat air tonight. It's fine. I got screwed. I am the one who gets the defeat. To be able to do this, to be able to let other people win, although, of course, you could fight. No. I can very well stand back. It's a very, very big thing. It sounds as a very simple thing, but in the years while I taught yoga and tantra, if I make a synthesis, if I make a survey now looking back, this is one of the most appalling things which I have seen. Most people hate to lose. Like when it comes to take defeat, people become much worse than usually. While Tibetan yoga says the eighth sign of a superior man is to allow unto others the victory, taking in unto oneself the defeat. That is the sign of a superior man. Going beyond competitivity. 
not going on Manipura all the time. Me, 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 me. This is a deep humbleness. Like you win. It's so much, there is so much righteousness. So much. Some people, if they cannot win anything else, at least they hate to lose a verbal conflict. People quarreling, arguing, and as it goes on, it escalates. It goes into uglier and uglier, more and more painful, more and more demonic things which people throw to each other, until they start yelling, throwing things. And then when they can't take the pressure on Manipura, <clears throat> they just get out of the room, smashing the door, but as they smash the door, they don't forget to say one last thing. Because they want not to lose. You should not be defeated. You should always have victory, at least verbal victory. I want to impose my point of view. What about taking defeat? The fathers of the desert, great Anahata mystics, they had a principle. Every time when you are brought in the situation of arguing bitterly with somebody, especially on spiritual, unverifiable issues, like not small things, like on the big bitter things, they would go and their preferred answer would be, you know what you are saying. Like somebody would say, you know, I think that this Jesus of yours sucks. And the old, this, this is a man who prayed to Jesus for a lifetime. And he could bring lots of arguments. And he would go like this and he would say, my brother, you know what you are saying. You know, like, maybe we'll meet in paradise. Maybe I'll see you in hell one day. We don't know. You know what you are saying. Like, I'm not going to go into conflict over this. You win. Yeah, you said something really smart. Oh, this Jesus of yours is a Mickey Mouse. You know what you're saying, you know? It's like, I don't need to win an argument with you. Trying to win arguments doesn't really lead anywhere. It's only an illusion. Some people try to win physically. Some people try to win verbally. It's all the same. It's a lack of peace in the mind. And this peace is very, very important. A couple of them, I hope I managed to finish this a wonderful chapter tonight, so I don't have to approach it in the, in the next satsanga. I will go to the next point. The point number nine, to differ from the multitude, from the crowds, from the masses, to differ from the multitude in every thought and action is the sign of a superior man which is a big blow to the Svadhisthanistic conformists. Because the Svadhisthanistic conformists, they always try to make peace with everybody. Be, be, I'm like you. Don't think I'm different. They are very, very afraid to be singled out and marginalized. And the Tibetan yogis who come from their strong Manipura, they, on the contrary, they make a pride out of it. And they say to differ from the multitude in every thought and action is the sign of a superior man. Like, 
how different are you from the multitude? How satisfied are you in being different from the multitude? This is a very important point. It is one of the very big drawbacks in spirituality. I have seen many, many yogis who practiced yoga for five years and then they fell back into the slum of some conformism. They were afraid to be different. Yeah, you know, I was different when I was young, but it didn't serve me anything. That's like losing your bodhicitta, losing your desire for enlightenment, losing your semen, losing your aspiration, losing the spine, losing this internal thing. <clears throat> It is a very politically incorrect statement because if to differ from the multitude in every thought and action is the sign of a superior man, it means that the multitude is inferior. It means that the masses are not made of superior men and women. And therefore, any one of you dreams about becoming a superior man or woman you have to put up, put up from the beginning with the thought that there will not be many of you up there. It's a bit of a destiny of loneliness. The greater you become, the more alone you will become in some ways because the multitude is not superior. And therefore you can be compassionate. You can be loved by the multitude but you will be different in every thought and action. When Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he knew that he was going to be martyrized. And Peter, <clears throat> who was a spiritual disciple, but still his mind was trite. He was thinking like the multitude, and he said, don't, don't go to Jerusalem. And Jesus told him, Peter, you think as people do, not as God does. Which means, if you want to think like God, you have to be different from people. Not by losing the love and the compassion and the communication. And yet, there is something very different. This Lama, who in the documentary, The Yogis of Tibet, is filmed and who did a lifetime of retreats in the wilderness, he is totally dismissive. He doesn't want to communicate to the cameraman. Like, who brought this guy who is trying to pierce the secrets of meditation and spirituality and tries to popularize them? Or like, the multitude will never understand what I am in my meditation. And this guy is so naive to think that if they film me and they make a documentary, then the multitudes will change. And he says, you, he finally speaks something, very dismissive though, and he speaks to the cameraman and to the interviewer and he says, you guys, you still see me like a human being. But he says, from where I stand and from my experiences, it's long, long time since I'm no longer a human being. It's scary. Like, what then do you become? What is when you become a god? What is happening when you are a cherubim or a seraphim of light, when you become an angel? Then you are not sharing, you still share the human body. 
and life, but the existential condition has changed. Buddha was living in a body out of compassion, but he was no longer a human except with the looks, with the body, because he had already reached nirvana and he did not deserve to be incarnated on this planet anymore. Therefore, he was not a human anymore, although out of inertia his body continued living biologically for another 40 years. This is scary, because some people are conformistic and svadistanistic. Some people want the comfort of the crowd. But this is evolution. These are the great heights. When you are climbing Mount Everest, there will not be many who can join you up there on the top. That's not for everybody. That's for some. And it is beautiful to be one of those some. It is not scary. One has to have the courage to go there. It's a very, you can meditate on this one, to differ from the multitude in every thought and action. What does the multitude think? Take your ex-schoolmates from high school. Take the members of your family and see what do they think. What, what is their thought and action? And then see, are you different from them in their thoughts and actions? If not, maybe you are not yet the superior man or the superior woman, but you can go there, you can reach there. This is, again, very, very scary for this Vadistanistic consciousness who is trying to ride on two horses to keep something and not to go, not to let go of everything. And finally, the tenth is a very Tibetan Buddhist monastic point to observe faithfully and without pride one's vows of chastity and piety and the customs of the others is the sign of a superior man. Like you are a Buddhist monk, you have your vows of chastity, of brahmacharya, of piety, whatever that means. Christian monks had piety as poverty, obedience, <clears throat> but there are different rules of piety in different religions. <clears throat> similar, very similar, but not quite identical. To observe faithfully and without pride one's vows of chastity and piety and the customs of others. When in Rome, do like the Romans. You live in some place, you don't need to rub it in the face of everybody that, oh, I'm very different from you. This is leading the human being to some arrogance. To observe faithfully and without pride. Why without pride? Because the people who observe faithfully their vows of chastity and piety, they are basically doing a lot of tapas. That's a tapasya. And the people who do tapas, they become very manipuristic. They develop a lot of fire and willpower. It takes a lot of discipline and inner strength to keep your vows. And then the first temptation is that you start bragging about it. You feel like, huh, 
Of course I'm doing my brahmacharya, you know. It's like you don't know what it costs me to do my brahmacharya, you know. It's like it's not that easy. You wimps, you fornicators, you, you know, you become arrogant and, and patronizing and you are proud. You start having it as a pride. That pride is terrible. That pride is leading to no good place. That pride is the fall of Satan, eventually. So, to be able to do it, but at the same time your Manipura should be surpassed by your Anahata, or by your Vishuddha, or Ajna, by a higher chakra in which there will be no pride. This pride, this fire, will be sublimed and swallowed into something spiritual, converted into something spiritual. To observe faithfully, faithfully and without pride, not let, don't let your Manipura become the motivator of your life, your vows of chastity and piety, and the customs of the others. Like people are not having vows of chastity. People are not having vows of piety. And when you live in the world, it can become very abrasive because you can brag about it, boast about it. And that is also not good. It's not God good for you and it is definitely not good for your relationship with the others. And that is why, imagine in Tibet, there were villages where people were killing animals, hunting and eating them while there were Tibetan lamas who were purely vegetarian and vegan and more than that. There were villages where people, where prostitution was being practiced. There were villages where there were big warlords, local rulers, just small king-like people, small local rulers who are very arrogant, very manipuristic, like the people that killed the father of Milarepa. Tibet is an area with very powerful egos, with very powerful Manipuras on some people. Very demonic, ugly, manipuristic people have existed in Tibet. This Mongolian, shamanic style, some very terrible type, some Genghis Khan, like personalities existed very much in that Manipura Ajna environment. And you live in, you live in such an environment and you are walking on the clouds. You are a very saintly person. And there you go in a village. And at the same time, you have to be able to integrate, not to rub your holiness in the face of other people, making them feel irritated or inferior, or keep your humbleness. They ask you, eat something. And then you can simply say, no, I cannot, I don't feel really good right now. No, like, it's better to not upset by saying, what, you are eating meat, but I am a vegetarian and I vowed not to eat meat all my life. To be able to keep your vows faithfully, but at the same time, with humbleness, without pride, and to respect other people's customs. Like, okay, that's your village, that's your culture. You are the way you are. Of course, if somebody comes and says, I want to be your disciple, 
I want to learn from you. Then it is your right as a teacher to mold them, to shape them, to tell them, look, if you want to be my disciple, then we play this game in a different way. But as long as this request has not been made, you are having your community, you are having your customs. Who am I to come here and tell you that I am holier than you and I am better and you should not do that? And no, to be able and at the same time not to lose your virtue. Like I have seen people, they would go in an environment where they were not vegetarians, they would lose their vegetarianism. They would go into an environment where, no, there was, I'll just to give you an example, there was a lady who was doing catering on yachts, on rich people's yachts. And then this lady told me, alas, I'm doing yoga and I'm a vegetarian, but when I'm working on those boats, I cannot be because there is not much vegetarian food on a boat and all those rich people want beef steaks and all sorts of, you know, you know, very sophisticated meat-based foods. And she said, when I am on the boat, I eat meat. That is not the way Tibetan yoga sees it. Tibetan yoga says to observe faithfully your vows and the customs of the others at the same time. Like to be able in the middle of a lot of pressure and temptation without provoking and without boasting to modestly follow your thing. That's what a superior person would do. A person who is not superior would err in one of those directions mentioned before, but doing things with superiority that is the way of it. You had some wonderful teachings about the way of the superior man, so to speak, paraphrasing a famous title, <coughs> in a Tibetan understanding of this process. Of course, colored by the Tibetan background and culture, shaded by the Buddhist background of the Tibetan yogis, but nevertheless, making some very important points. I don't know if somebody doing a lot of meditation might not discover another <coughs> sign of a spiritual man. The Tibetans prefer to stick to ten. The ten signs of a superior human being, of a superior practitioner, and that can give you inspiration towards cultivating your own evolution how to rise from the dust, how to go towards heaven, how to evolve spiritually. Let us, as usually, remain two, three minutes in silence so that the subconscious mind calms down and that these teachings are sinking in in a peaceful way. And after this couple of minutes of silence, we'll stop and part for tonight. And that will do for now. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining with Satsang. I'll continue with the Yoga of the Disciple next Thursday. More precepts addressed to the spiritual seekers by the Tibetan sages. With this we have finished for tonight.